what you just heard. Sound of a huge waterfall, sound of a thunderstorm. is <clears throat> what the Bible says that worship and the presence of the Lord Jesus is going to someday <clears throat> sound like. And why is the worship on that day going to be so grand? Several reasons. First of all, <clears throat> the worshipers will be worshiping because they are fully satisfied with Jesus. They are worshiping with intensity. There's a grandness about it because there's a grandness about who He is. And so are the overflow of their satisfaction and experience with Jesus. They are worshiping. The second reason they'll be worshiping that way, we will be worshiping that way, is because the worshipers, as pictured in the book of Revelation, are fully prepared to worship Him. They will not have stumbled into worship. They have prepared themselves to worship. And the third reason the worship will be that, like we just heard, is that it will be worship that will focus on Jesus and Jesus only. The worship will be focused on Jesus and Jesus only. This worship that we're going to look at today in the book of Revelation is a worship that is born from a deep desire to stay into God, in God's presence. To get into His presence and just stay in His presence. Drink of His presence. Just become consumed with the awesomeness of Jesus. So often when we talk about worship, we reflect back perhaps on how we worshiped when we were growing up or our former experiences of worship, or we will talk about what we worship and experience today. But today I'm asking you to do something different, not to look back at maybe how you worship in the past, not to look at the present and how we worship now, but to take a look into the future. And to say, how are we going to worship someday in the presence of the Lord? Because we can learn a lot about how to worship today by looking into the future about how we're going to worship when this world comes to a conclusion and we're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, worship in the book of Revelation is not about style, it is about cause. I want to say that again. It is not about style, it is about cause. Most of our worship discussions today have happened to do about style, southern gospel, contemporary, traditional, etc. But the worship in the book of Revelation is not about style, it is about cause. So we're going to look at why these folks are worshiping with the intensity with which they're worshiping. And that gives us clues about how to worship now, and it gives us clues about how to pray. Because we saw several weeks ago that worship and prayer go together. In fact, prayer begins at the place of worship. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Now, the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. I'm going to share with you one of my picky things about the book of Revelation to start off, okay? If you really want to grate on my nerves, pronounce it the book of Revelations with an S on the end of it, and that would just drive me nuts, okay? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelations of Jesus Christ. It is one continuous revelation. And so it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever a pastor preaches on the book of Revelation, he treads upon ground upon which angels themselves fear to tread upon because there are so many different interpretations of this book. And what I'm going to say to you 
today is my purpose this morning is not to try to enunciate various interpretations. It is rather to focus on the worship in the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, which is going to be our primary focus today, is one of the key moments in the drama of the end times that's pictured in this book of Revelation. Chapter 19 features the destruction of what's called a false system that is identified as Babylon. And throughout the book of Revelation, you will see the term Babylon used over and over again. It is not an actual physical city. It is rather the idea of a false system that is set up to oppose God in every capacity possible and to persecute those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the 19th chapter, we come to the culmination when this false system of Babylon has been overthrown. And there is tremendous worship and rejoicing that is going on in heaven because of the victory that Jesus has achieved over the forces of evil that are labeled Babylon. Sort of going back to the Old Testament Babylon and using that metaphor to speak of it. Now, there is also a second metaphor that is used here, and that is of a wedding. Near Eastern weddings had very interesting traditions, and we don't follow these traditions too much in the West, so we tend to miss what it's talking about in Scripture. But in the Near Eastern traditions, in the time that the Bible was written, when you had a wedding, the wedding began at the bride's house, and the groom would have a processional, and they would go to the bride's house, and there at the bride's house... He would greet the bride, and then they would begin a second processional, and this processional would move from the bride's house to the groom's house, and the groom would lead the bride and her wedding party from her house to his house. Now, when they got to his house, that is the groom's house, they would throw what was called the marriage supper, and it was basically a great big party, and it would go on literally for days. That's why you see, like in Jesus' situation where they ran out of wine that day, because it went on for days and days and days. And by the way, Jacob, if you all could arrange a wedding celebration that would go on for days, we would really appreciate that, particularly at, at, our, at your expense. That would be a wonderful thing. <laughs> if you see a hen will come flying in my direction, you'll understand why. But they would just celebrate for days and days in those in those days. And so the idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're going to read about in this passage is taken from that imagery. And that is Jesus comes for His bride. His bride is the church. So He is going to come for His bride, the church. And He is going to take us from where we are on this earth back to where He is in heaven, in the presence of the Father, and there the marriage supper of the Lamb will commence, and it will be a time of tremendous celebration. And so that's the imagery that He's using here. Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to begin with verse 5. And from the throne, that is from the throne of God, came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants. Key term there, servants. You who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, and the writer here is John, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin, and I invite you, if you will, to follow along with me. What is worship going to sound like when we are in His presence someday? What do we learn from that? Well, first of all, it's going to sound like satisfied submission. Satisfied submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice in verse 5, it says there's this call from the, literally from the throne of God. In other words, God is calling believers throughout the ages to worship Him. And notice how they are identified in verse 5. It says, His servants. Or the term there is bond slaves. In other words, we will come in that day to worship Him as His servant. He's our master. We are His servants. He says, I want you to come all those who fear Him. And so part of being His servant is fearing Him, respecting Him. He says, those who are small and great, none is too significant not to be called to worship Him, and none is too powerful that they don't need to come and worship Him. And you, so you see, the first thing we see here about this is that I find my satisfaction in Jesus when I come to receive orders from Him instead of me coming to give Him orders. I receive satisfaction from Jesus when I come as a servant and he is my master. That is the idea of what he's saying here. And folks, our worship starts at the place of submitting to him. Now, when we submit to him, when we yield to him in worship, what happens? Well, notice verse 6. It says that they begin to just yell out, Hallelujah. Now, the term hallelujah, we saw this several weeks ago, is a term that means to be deeply satisfied out of the experience of superior, superior qualities and great acts. In other words, they are looking at who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished, and they are experiencing who Jesus is and what He has accomplished, and out of the superiority of who Jesus is and out of the quality of who Jesus is, they just begin to spontaneously and explosively begin <clears throat> excuse me, to offer their worship to the Lord. They are diving into Jesus and who He is and what He has accomplished, and they are beginning to worship Him. And so what you and I do when we begin to worship Him is we begin to dive into and experience who He is. I keep using the word experience, and my reason for that is this. If our worship is just theory and just idea and just distant, we will never worship but so intensely. When worship is experience, in other words, I am worshiping out of my experience of who Jesus is. I am diving into Him, and I'm experiencing what it means to be cleansed by Him, saved by Him, walking with Him. When I'm experiencing His royalty, His majesty, His awesomeness, that is when my worship begins to take on this 
what I call revelation look of worship. Now notice what they say. They say, the Lord God Almighty reigns. <clears throat> now, John is sitting on the Isle of Patmos, isolated out of the Aegean Sea. And he writes, the Lord God Almighty reigns. If you had been standing over John's back, you would have looked at John and said, why in the world are you writing that? The Lord God Almighty reigns. Because it means the one who holds all things in his control. The one who holds all things in his control. John, don't you know that the Roman Empire holds all things under his control? The Lord God Almighty doesn't reign. Caesar reigns. The Roman Empire reigns. That was 2,000 years ago. We were, our mission team was in Italy back in October. And we were in the northern part of Italy in Milan. And we got to go to Bergamo and see an ancient city built by the Romans. We saw some things in Milan that the Romans had built. But you know the powerful Roman Empire that reigned when John wrote Revelation is long gone and Jesus is still on his throne. And you see the idea here when he says the Lord God Almighty reigns is the kingdoms come and the kingdoms go, but Jesus remains the same. And there is coming a day, and this book lays it out, when he's going to finally wipe them all off the map, and he alone is going to reign uncontested as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this is a statement of faith and prophecy when it says that the Lord God Almighty reigns. Please hear me on this. We never worship just out of the present. We always worship with one idea and one eye looking forward towards the future and Him coming again as King of Kings. Now notice verse 7, it says, Rejoice and give Him glory. It is the idea that worship is always infused by joy. But what does the joy come from when it says give Him glory? Now we don't give God glory in the sense that we add glory to God. God's already got all the glory. The idea of giving glory is I reflect back to Him who He is. It's like if I stand in front of a mirror and begin to describe what I'm seeing in the mirror, that is a reflection. And it's like we're standing beside Jesus, and Jesus is looking into the mirror, and we begin to reflect back to Him and to say to Him what we see in the mirror. Jesus, I see your awesomeness. Jesus, I see your majesty. Jesus, I see your power to forgive and cleanse. Jesus, I see your holiness. Jesus, I see your love. Just goes on and on. And let me add one other thing. The greatest antidote that you and I have to sin and temptation on our lives is not saying, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. It's falling in love with Jesus over and over again. The more I fall in love with Him, the less I want to sin. The more attracted I am to Jesus, the less attracted to sin I am. And the biggest thing Satan tries to do is just pull us away from Jesus, get us distracted away from Jesus, and try to attract us with sin. Because if my focus is on Him... And I'm reflecting back His glory. Sin's not going to hold allurement to me. Now notice next. Worship will sound like preparation. Verses 7 through 9. Verse 7. He speaks of the church as the bride of Christ here. And he says, The marriage of the Lamb 
has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. Now I want you to see the way he describes Jesus here. He says the marriage of the Lamb has come. It's interesting to me in the book of Revelation that every time, not every time, but so many times when Jesus is identified, he is identified as the Lamb of God. This is referred to as the marriage of the Lamb. Now, again, in Middle Eastern culture of that day, you would have said so-and-so is getting married, and I am going to the marriage of, and you would name the name of the groom. So he is naming the groom here as the lamb. But why is he doing that? Why is it not the marriage of Jesus? So why is it not the marriage of Jesus the Christ? Why does he say it's the marriage of the lamb? The terminology of lamb here, Jesus is the lamb of God, is that that speaks of Jesus bearing the marks of the crucifixion. Every time you see him in the book of Revelation spoken of as the lamb, It is the idea that when you look upon him, you see the nail scars in his feet, in his hands, and in his side, where the crown of thorns was in his head. And so you refer to him as the the Lamb of God because he bears the marks of having been our sacrificial lamb on the cross. So this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see what he's trying to say to us here? It is just totally awesome. He is saying that when you and I are in the presence of Jesus on that day and we look upon him, he will be the king of kings and he will be the Lord of lords, but he is also going to be preeminently the Lamb of God. We're going to look upon him and he's going to hold out his hands to us and we're going to see nail scars in those hands. We will look on his feet and we're going to see nail scars in his feet. He will pull back his robe and we will see where the spear was thrust into his side. And every time we look upon him, we will see where those, that crown of thorns was placed in his head. He's the Lamb of God and we will say to him when we look upon him, you died for me. You took that suffering for me. You bear those scars for me. Jesus, I cannot praise you enough. I cannot worship you enough. And that's why when we worship today, what we need to do is look at Jesus as the Lamb of God and every time we go to to worship him say Lord in my mind's eye I see those nail prints and you did it for me Jesus that's where my redemption took place that's where my deliverance was secured that's where you poured it all out for me Jesus and I can't help but say hallelujah to you and bless you Jesus and praise you but notice it says that the bride has made herself ready The bride has made herself ready. Helen and I were meeting with uh, Jacob and Angela yesterday and um, sort of telling them what it was like to be in ministry and so forth. And they're getting ready to get married. And we were sort of sharing some stories about when we were getting ready to get married. It took us back to when we were in that engagement period. And from the time we got engaged to the time we got married, it was all about getting ready for the wedding. Y'all, some of y'all remember going through that. And I remember Helen was worried about bridesmaid dresses and wedding cake and et cetera, et cetera. She told me, she said, I wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety attacks sometimes over thinking all this stuff's got to get done. Is it getting done on time, et cetera, et cetera. Now, being a man, I wasn't worried about that. The shakes hit me the day of the wedding. 
I just about wore out the choir room floor when I started hearing him playing that organ. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, the time has come, etc. But she was working on that. And then I remember when she told me she went to find her wedding dress and went to a place in Richmond to get the wedding dress and then get the wedding portrait and all that. It was all that preparation that was going on. And this is the, that's the idea that he's talking about. He says, the bride has made herself ready. And what he's saying here is that when we come to Jesus, we get engaged to him. And when he comes again, we're going to get married as the church to him. But in between engagement and marriage, which is right now, what are we doing? We're not sitting back twiddling our fingers waiting for Jesus to come again. We're getting ready for him. Every decision we make, we are getting ready for him. Now notice what it says, verse 8. It says it's going to be clothed, that church, that bride of Christ is going to be clothed, verse 8, in fine linen. Now fine linen in those days was the clothing of two groups of people. Don't miss this. It was, first of all, the clothing of royalty. If you were royal, you wore fine linen. Jesus says, I'm going to treat my church like it's royalty. I'm going to dress them like they're royalty when they come into my presence. And then he says, you're going to wear fine linen. Now, the the high priest, on the Day of Atonement, when he walked into the most holy place and stood literally in the presence of God in what was called the Shekinah or manifest glory of God, just didn't walk in there, he got dressed with very specific clothing. And one of the things that he wore was fine linen. Because that fine linen said that he was prepared. And when the other folks watched him put that linen on, they said he's going into the presence of God. So the idea here of the church being draped and worn in this fine linen is that we're going to stand in the presence of God. It brings access to the presence of God. Now, what is that fine linen? Notice it says that it's the righteous acts of the saints. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 has these words. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Notice this sentence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What he's saying there is that between engagement and marriage, we're doing what? We're working out our salvation. And we're not working for our salvation, but we are working out the implications that Jesus has saved us. And how do we do that? He says, do it with fear and trembling. In other words, take it serious. Every act of service that we engage in is an act of worship, and it is preparing us to be in his presence someday. You see, the way I live my life is not just about today. It is about me getting ready to be in his presence someday. Now, I want you to see next how he prepares us for his presence. Revelation chapter 7. A few chapters over, a few chapters back. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now notice how they're clothed. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the picture He gives us there is of us standing from every ethnic group you can imagine 
before the presence of God. Notice how we're clothed. That crowd is clothed. We're clothed in white robes. Again, that idea of that white linen, royalty, access to the presence of God. We're crying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But I want you to see verses 13 through 17. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where did they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes, which would indicate that their robes were dirty, and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Now notice this next verse, verse 16. They shall hunger no more. Apparently they have been hungry. And He says they shall hunger no more. They shall thirst. They shall neither thirst anymore. Apparently they've been thirsty. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now the picture that He's giving of this great multitude is that they are engaging in this awesome worship. But how did they get there? It says they got there through great tribulation. It says that God's going to look at them and say, you've been hungry, and you're not going to be hungry anymore. You've been thirsty. And you're not going to thirst anymore. And you've been crying. And I'm going to wipe away all the tears out of your eyes. Now, hold that thought with me. And go with me to Revelation chapter 6. A chapter back. Revelation chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain For the word of God and for the witness they had bored. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The picture in Revelation chapter 6, the picture in Revelation chapter 7, is this multitude got to the throne of God And they broke out in spontaneous, explosive praise. But don't miss this. They didn't get there easy. They didn't get there easy. In Revelation chapter 6, it says that they were slain for Jesus. And they're saying, how long? And God says, there's more of your brothers that are going to be killed for me before you worship. In Revelation chapter 7, they came through great tribulation. They hungered. They were thirsty. They cried. 
You see, the picture in Revelation is of people that are intensely worshiping, but they have journeyed through sacrifice and suffering to get there. And many have lost their lives in the process of getting there. Now, folks, what most of us like to hear from Revelation, what we want to hear is Jesus is coming again, and it's going to be grand and glorious, and we're going to reign with him, and we're going to shout hallelujah, etc., etc. And we conveniently just ignore this great tribulation stuff and wiping tears from our eyes and people being slain under the all that's somebody else that don't apply to us. The original folks who received the book of Revelation understood what John was saying because they were losing their lives for Jesus and their worship was taking place in the catacombs of Rome where they went down literally into graves to worship because they had to because if they worshipped out front like we are right now they wouldn't live through a worship service the Romans come and kill every one of them they knew what it was to see the suffering and the hungering and the thirsting and I'd like to stand up here to, in front of you this morning and say to you that we're all going to get to heaven someday and it's going to be great and wonderful and the trip there is going to be wonderful. But folks, to be honest with you, if I'm honest with the word, a bunch of us are going to probably get there, but we're going to have to do some sacrificing and suffering on the way to the throne. It is not going to be an easy trip. Why does God take us through this kind of an experience to get us through the throne to worship Him. Because there is something about sacrificing for Jesus and with Jesus. There is something about suffering for Him and with Him that brings a purity to worship and brings an intensity to worship. I don't just trot into His presence and say, well, I think I'll sing a praise chorus to Him today or sing a hymn. I come in there having suffered to get there. I come in there having sacrificed something to get there. I come in there having given up something to get there. That is the picture of those who worship Him. Notice what it says, chapter 19, verse 8. It was granted that they would be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. It's the idea that he glorified them when they got there. Now, I want you to see one final thing in this passage. Verse 10 of Revelation chapter 19. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. John stands there with this angel and he watches and he listens to all of this revelation. And he is so impressed and he is so overwhelmed and it is so awesome. And he falls down before the angel. And the angel, real quick, says, John, uh uh, get back on your feet. Don't worship me. Worship the Lord only. Don't get caught up in the messenger. Don't get caught up in what I've talked about. you got to stay focused on Jesus. And folks, the temptation that all of us have is to miss Jesus and to get caught up in worshiping the messenger of worship 
or the atmosphere of worship or the impressiveness of worship. So if we're not careful, sometimes we fall into worshiping a style. We fall into worshiping a pat preacher. We fall into worshiping instrumentalists. We fall into worship all kinds of things. And we sort of push Jesus out of the way. And the message constantly is, don't get caught up in what's delivering worship to you. Stay focused on the person of worship. And I think sometimes God's message to evangelical churches in our country today, because we get so wrapped up in all the ambiance and who's making it, is stop getting caught up in that and stay focused on me. You see, Jesus, I think, is going to do something with his church if we're not careful. He's going to say to us, if you keep getting caught up in all of the other stuff, the personalities, you name it, I will take it away from you until you've got me and me only left. Years ago when I was on a mission trip to Venezuela, on a Wednesday night, the missionaries told us we're going to worship tonight. And Baptists in Venezuela don't have buildings. They couldn't even dream about having buildings. They couldn't even afford to have them. So we gathered with about 20, 25 Venezuelans in this room. We had no instruments. We had to either sing a cappella or they had a little... I'm going to date myself here. We had a little tape deck thing or CD player that they played. And for several hours, we sat there and we sang and we prayed and they had a Bible lesson. And I remember sitting there thinking, gosh, this is so authentic. This is so real. And when I look back on that experience, what I realized was we didn't have all the trappings and stuff we got here in the United States. But we did have Jesus. And that was the most important thing. And what we didn't have didn't keep him from showing up. And touching us. And ministering to us. And that's what he's saying here. Keep the focus on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you. By finding our satisfaction in you. Father, many of us, you are going to take in one capacity or another through a journey of sacrifice and suffering to get to the place of worship. To keep us focused on you and you only. But Lord, we want to just linger in your presence and find our satisfaction in you. Jesus, you said that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in their midst. And Lord, you're right here this morning. And we bless you. And we praise you. And Father, for those who are here who have given up stuff to serve you, it makes the worship just that more intense and satisfying. For those who have been brought through times of suffering... Again, it has the potential to make our worship just that much more intense and satisfying. And Jesus, if down the road we have to travel a rough path to get there, then Lord, keep our eyes on the throne of God, on you, Lord, and help us get there.
we bless you, we praise you, and we honor you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, if you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus, if you've never said to him, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you and serve you, then I want to invite you in just a moment as we sing to, to walk the aisle of this church and say, Pastor, today I want to give my life to Jesus, and I want to follow him and I want to serve him. The Lord's laying upon your heart to make any other public decision. We invite you to come. Whether it's to seek to honor Him through baptism or to become part of our church family or to answer a specific call that He's placed on your life. Lord, we give you praise this morning in your name. Amen.